Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And I believe it has just turned four o'clock and it's time for, as Chris said, Jan Bartlett and I'll be here until six this evening. Today, report back from the demonstration at Summerton at the presence of the white supremacist with Debbie Brennan from Radical Women. Another rally tomorrow regarding Australian government's plan to persecute former ASIS operative and his lawyer regarding or for exposing Australia's wrongful practices by their government. A monthly report on issues relating to Western Sahara with Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association. Also a monthly report from Geoethics Network with Bob Phelps. A new law in Israel. What does it mean for the Palestinian citizens of Israel? And I'll be speaking to Nasser Marshni, who represents a number of Palestinian advocacy networks. But first, it's Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane Lister, when we left US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor last week, having united both sides of both houses of the US of Congress, upset that he had been sort of nice to Russian big supremo Vladimir Putin better than Donald, when both sides of both houses are desperate to declare war on evil Russia because formerly evil communist Russia was now evil capitalist Russia, or war on evil China for the same crime, or both. And thus arising from all this, Donald discovered Miss Spoke was not just another woman panting for him to touch her up, as he has modestly boasted he can touch up any woman he wants, because women just love being touched up by great men like Donald. But this Miss Spoke got her own back, thanks to Donald mixing up his double negatives. Sort of double negative. He said, and obviously when you're as great and busy as Donald, you don't have the time to learn what a double negative actually is, given it wasn't. Although a double negative does say the opposite of what you meant to say, so at least Donald got that bit right. If we believe him, or wrong, if we don't believe him, but I throw that in just for balance for who would ever not believe Donald. He just misspoke in Monday's version, didn't double negative when he thought he had in Tuesday's version, contradicted both in Wednesday's version, and so on, but only because the fake news media thought he was answering a question he wasn't answering. Apparently he was answering a question they hadn't asked yet, true prescience. While all the while, both sides of both houses were deciding that if the train killer NATO lot won't spend more and more on US weapons of mass destruction to bomb the proverbial out of evil capitalist Russia, well, a good old liberty, freedom and democracy world protector of, of will have to do it for them. After all, when you buy two-thirds of the world's weapons of mass destruction, you don't want to waste all those trillions. Utilise the weapons of so you need to buy more in your quest for world peace and with stable rational Donald the commander in chief with his finger on the button it makes for a very comforting scenario. Thus, we mightn't have to wait for Donald's and our very own climate change that isn't climate change policies to fry the planet to death. We'll just blow it up. 
Also mentioned last week, one of the boys rescued in Thailand had been from Myanmar, stateless families, but allowed a work permit. Well, there were two from Myanmar, as it turns out, and the Thai government, in the goodness of its heart, is thinking of giving them citizenship. How big of them? And I thought... If they'd somehow fled to True Blue Aussie seeking refuge, they wouldn't even get near a work permit. They'd be locked up for life on an island prison. Sorry, Pacific Island Paradise, for the heinous crime of seeking compassion. Not that they wouldn't be getting it, because our Minister for Concentration Camps raise a wire and sink the boats, and, making us secure, Constable Peter Duffer says his policy, our policy, is compassionate. And the Socialist Party says it would even be more compassionate than compassionate, which translates to scouring the planet, desperately trying to find a country willing to accept our responsibilities. Uh, any country? Any country other than True Blue Aussie. So with any luck, they could be accepted by, say, Myanmar. What goes around comes around. And as far as all those pollies past and present who have practised our compassionate policy, the sooner the better. Once more, the good news is the caring business class and hayseed and sheepshit party's extreme fossils have proven they are not yet extinct by continuing to determine our environment policy for us, thanks to the courageous leadership of big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull and the strong stand by the Minister for Fossils, Josh Fry de Weisbergs, who has boasted to the fossils that coal, good, clean, old King Coal, will remain our major energy source for the foreseeable future, for which therefore he doesn't have to look too far ahead. It'll probably be our entire limited future, thanks to his strong, courageous resistance to the fossils and the fossil industry. And as we fry and sizzle and disappear, we'll do so content in the knowledge that we didn't damage at least one section of the economy. Why did you let us, why did you let them kill us? Some young innocent will ask. Because, you know, like, we couldn't afford, like, not to. Just thought I'd make this a cheer-up afternoon, listener. Will nuclear holocaust or climate change get us first? Another item from last week, that fundraiser for... Oh, sorry, coppers with mental health problems, which led us to state the obvious that the mere fact someone wants to be a copper indicates a mental health problem up front, treat them as they walk in the door to enlist. Well, our admiration for the mind-boggling intelligence of our forces of law and order was reinforced by that body in a barrel they found, believed to have been buried there for 15 years. For, hard as it is to believe, police said they were treating it as, wait for it, wait for it, Suspicious! Good God! Who would have thought? Just when we concluded the corpse must have crawled into the barrel and buried itself. As those who matter were gasping for air at irresponsible threats from the evil ACTU that lazy avaricious workers should have some rights, good news. The big true blue Aussie, bloody huge profits, bloody huge polluter, announced record dividends for shareholders. And therefore, um, wage rises for the workers who made all those dividends for you? If only we could, but unfortunately, the year ahead faces serious headwinds. It would be irresponsible to seek pay rises in the current climate. Sadly, the time is not right. Uh, but you must be concerned at this ongoing problem of slow wages growth. Certainly, very, very concerned. It's a real worry.
any wonder we know and love them as caring employers. Notice their great supporter, our big economic guru, scuttled them more less than, backs calls for an overhaul of the World Trade Organization. I'm sure that'll have the whole world taking notice to determine how the system has failed. Just to offer a bit of advice to scuttle them, we might suggest the starting point could be the last US of election. Without it, we'd never have known how unfair the whole thing is, how the poor old US of is being ripped off. And we can but imagine how abashed the result of that election, Donald, would be that in the world of the greatest little economic order of them all, anyone would rip anyone off. Despite claims the practice had stopped, notice Melbourne City Council is seizing the few poultry belongings of the city's homeless and destroying them, thereby eliminating the danger of these bludgers on public property getting their few belongings back, a, a foolproof policy to eliminate homelessness as a few nights in the rock-hard gutter with nothing to reduce the freezing should prompt them to get off their bums and seek a bit of useful employment. Although... As a former real estate mogul, surely the new council big supremo could find a roof somewhere among the towering blocks surrounding the homeless and cranes filling the skyline to provide a little protection for the night. But, no, no, silly me, better to seize their belongings, allowing them to start anew. I raise this because as the Spring Street Socialist lot are privatising public housing estates across the city, knowing the private sector is the solution, the answer to massive public housing waiting lists is get rid of public housing, because then we won't need a public housing waiting list. Notice the government is in the process of providing about 1,400 new beds in the privatised prison sector and that as far as I could make out doesn't even include the new juvenile prison whose inmates we can assume as avid readers of the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin would be these black African ne'er-do-wells marauding our city. Well if we've got a privatised prison system we have to keep supplying the products to provide the private compassionate companies with their hard-earned profits. After all, these companies are also protecting our borders from the no-proper-papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people attempting to exploit our goodness. And how, as they, the illegal boat people, enjoy life on those idyllic Pacific paradises, Nauru and Manus and Christmas Island, they must so appreciate that goodness. Sort of reverse retail, where we pay to buy the products, but in this case, we pay them and provide them with the products and with the real estate in which to manage the products. Win-win. Just this morning, Lord Rupert highlighted the problem yet again. First time since yesterday. P1. Exclusive. Teen gang buster. Tough new laws to tackle youth crime crisis. Just one point, and we have to look beyond the Lord Rupert responsible reporting to realise this, but figures show that for the past several years, crime rates have been falling, falling. So, so why do we need 1,400 new private prison beds plus a new youth prison if there's less crime? It's a mystery. 
Then again, finally, those homeless, if they're too lazy to look for work, which they'd be guaranteed to get, might march into the town hall, demand they destroy total world goods back, and kick up such a fuss they're guaranteed getting arrested for trespass and or nuisance or something, and happily land in one of the 1,400 beds, and do their bit for the private sector. Again, win-win. Good afternoon. Uh, Mr Kevin Healy. And you can hear Mr. Kevin Healy tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock for his program. See Limits, I'm not sure where his co-presenters are at the moment, but um, he'll obviously be there at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. Dutch white supremacist Geert Wilders was there in February 2013. And last Friday night, two more similarly-minded individuals, Lauren Southern and Stefan Molyneux, performed there at the same venue, La Mirage, in Somerton. Speaking once again to Debbie Brennan from Radical Women, who was present at the demonstration by anti-fascists outside the building. When were you aware just where that venue was? It was around Friday morning that we knew that the booking company was instructing attendees to the event to take the train to Broadmeadows, that they would then be shuttled to the venue, but we didn't know yet where the venue was. So it was actually just a couple of hours before the event itself that we found out where the venue actually was, very similar to what it was like in organizing against Milo Yiannopoulos last December. And how many people went? Those of us going to protest, there would have been up to about 200. In terms of people going to the event, it's hard to actually know, but apparently, according to the media, about 800 tickets had been sold. So it could have been anywhere up to that number that actually attended the event. Most people went by train. Were the police also on the train? Uh, Listen, the police were everywhere. They knew that those of us going to the protest would be meeting at Federation Square to take the train together to Broadmeadows. It was really from Federation Square that we saw the police presence. So from Federation Square... They were there in their numbers. They were filming us. They were doing the stop and search as we were going toward the train at Flinders Street. And then, of course, you get off at Broad Meadows. The place was swarming with police. You had to go through just a thick gauntlet of police to be stopped and searched. And, of course, they had their mounted police there at Broad Meadows. They had already been there for quite some time for the earlier wave of protesters who had been there to stop the shuttle buses. Who closed Hume Highway? Was it the protesters or was it the police? It was the police. So That's not the message we're getting on the mainstream media. I know. Yes, honestly, the police, they were there in flight in their riot unit units on with the horses with the dogs with the battens with the pepper spray and of course with the guns 
being there in full, absolutely full force, they had cut off the Hume Highway. So to actually get to the venue, those of us who were protesting, we had to organize cars. It was quite quite a, a logistical exercise to, to carry off this protest. Go by car from Broadmeadows Station to the venue was quite a feat in itself because the police had totally blocked the Hume Highway. It took a bit of doing. It took a bit of, you know, having to go off in different directions, finally finding a place to park, and then footing it from up to about a kilometer to get to the venue and get to the protest itself. So what the, what the police had done was they had, as you would expect, moved us away from the venue gate and they were, in fact, pushing us out onto the Hume Highway. So especially when the um, shuttles were coming to the venue itself from the Broadmeadows Station, there was a bus that the protesters had stopped and forced eventually those on the bus to be escorted by police into the venue. But what the police were doing was dragging protesters away from the bus, throwing protesters out into the Hume Highway. Clearly, they weren't too concerned about people's safety. And to be there and be part of this, it was a show of how far the state would go to protect the far right and the fascists who were there with the far right. It was an amazing show of force. Something to really see and to understand the extent to which the state will go to protect the far right and fascists, which we have been aware of for the last three and a half years. Is there an estimate of how many police were there? Oh, I can only go by what mainstream media say I think that they've set up to about 500 it could well have been more than that because they were dealing not with just a you know a confined action and in previous confined actions such as around Parliament House for example there have been up to 500 police I mean my guess is that it was more than that because they really, really had to mobilize police from everywhere to put on the show that they did. I might add that the fascists were there. They were there mainly in the venue itself, and the fascist groups, the, the Lads Society, that's the Blair Cottrell outfit right now, the Lads Society, and apparently the Antipodean resistance, they were there as the private security for Southern and Molyneux. That is something to take note of as well, that Southern and Molyneux were using fascists as their security that night. Suppose you could say, why wouldn't they? Yeah, well, that's it. So if anybody has any question about links between our far-right celebrities who come to do their tours, the link between them and fascists, it's there. It's there for all to see. 
Just wondering about the bus company, whether they were aware of what they were doing. They certainly did. The bus company, not only the bus company, but also the booking agency. The booking agency is called Axiomatic Events. They knew exactly what they were doing, as the venue did, because we have to understand that that venue, which is La Mirage in Somerton on the Hume Highway, they had actually hosted the Dutch far-right politician with um, fascist connections, Geert Wilders, about five years ago. All who were part of this, this event knew exactly who they were dealing with and um, they were quite happy to do it. Is it known how many of your team or the others who were there to protest against the anti-fascists actually got into the venue? There were some. There might have been about half a dozen. I'm only saying that from the, the YouTube that I saw from inside. There were up to about half a dozen who got inside and they, you know, unfurled their banner. They expressed, their, you know, the pro-refugee, yelled you know, pro-refugee slogans, anti-fascist slogans and so on before the private security threw them out. Did they get out safely? I believe they did. I haven't heard otherwise. Now, the cost of this, again, is an issue, isn't it? The police? Yes, certainly. And I, I've, I've seen figures of up to like a quarter of a million and the police billing Southern Malinu something like 68,000, which is a drop in the bucket, you know, compared to what the actual cost is. Taxpayers' dollars are there to um, protect the far right, very much like, as we know, taxpayer dollars are there to finance wars and big corporate bailouts, so I suppose it's pretty standard fare that that's where workers' dollars end up going. Well, I think it's pretty clear to these alt-right people that they're not going to get away with bringing people over here to Australia and not expecting to have demonstrations against them, and, and that's going to continue. Well, it is, and this particular event in its bigger picture, it's part of just an ongoing series of these far-right tours. So we had Milo in December, we had Southern and Molyneux Friday, we have Nigel Farage from the far-right UKIP in Britain coming out in September, we have Trump himself coming out, I believe, around November-ish. Milo Yiannopoulos is going to be coming back out you know, later this year. So it's not an exaggeration. In fact, I think the reality is that the far-right movement globally is doing its work to cohere itself globally, including in Australia, and we do have to see all of this as part of that larger picture. Whoever it may be, whatever packaging they try to use, whether it be a, you know, a hip young woman like Southern or a hip gay man like Milo Yiannopoulos or whatever it may be, they are carrying the same messages that the far right and fascists are putting all the time. And it is messages of scapegoating, messages of scapegoating against 
people who are resisting a global economy that is belly up. So the fact that this is a international far-right movement can be no surprise because, after all, the economy that's going belly up is a global economy. So it's something that we clearly need to see in that magnitude. And I think something that we were talking in the contingent I was in, we were talking about, is that while we were there doing, you know, the hard yards of last Friday, you know, up to 200 of us, we really, really do need to be seriously building a massive, massive united front of all of us who are targeted and the organizations that we belong to because that united front of all of our organizations and individuals, whatever our politics may be, we need to unite around a core of agreed points of unity because we've got to be much, much, much more massive and have much more force. Those of us in our contingent have been saying it from the beginning that the union movement is pivotal to this. And if we just think back on May 9th when you know, 120,000 were out on the streets for a Change the Rules rally. Just imagine what we could actually do if we formed that united front and built it of all of us, you know, who are targets of the far right. Why do you believe the union movement aren't coming to the fore? It, this is an historical thing. I don't want to just sort of put it onto the union movement in Australia here, but, you know, back 80 years ago when a united front failed to form, it was because the trade unions and the socialist movement way back then were not united. So why doesn't the union movement come on board? I think after you ask the union bureaucracies why they, they don't. Unionists ourselves, and I count myself as among them, are out there. And we want to build this. There's a difference between, you know, the officialdom and those of us who are the rank-and-file members and the delegates who see the enormity of what we're facing and why we need our unions to be part of this united front. The officialdom, I think, are, well, there's a being tied to the Labor Party, being part of it, not wanting to rock the boat. The problem is that unless the unions come in on this, the boat is going to be rocked. We really need to outflank the far right and the fascists before they outflank us. I think all the unionists out there who are listening, we've got our work to do in getting our unions on board as part of the united front. Have you had conversations with the, the leadership of your union? Yes, and I'm in the National Union of Workers. We get support verbally. The thing that gets in the way is what is said is that until Trades Hall comes in behind it, we as an individual union cannot do it. I mean, my reply to that is... Don't let any obstacles stand in the way. There is no reason to hold back because there seems to be an apparent 
obstacle. And I actually think not only on this question but any question that involves unions is that it's a question of democracy and the unions and the union membership and the union delegates who see the dangers on any front as they are, we've got to actually take control of our unions. We've got to fight for that democracy, for our unions to be doing what we know unions should be doing. Well, apart from the unions, you've got people who would like to be take part in your meetings and your demonstrations, and it's no good waiting until a week before there's someone comes. It's got to be done before then. Completely agree, because it's not a matter of jumping from one action to the next action, and we've got several actions coming up, but it's not a matter of just jumping from one to the next, as what you're saying is, you know, suggesting that we we do have to do more than that. It's a matter of looking at that bigger picture, looking at not just protesting against each nasty visitor or nasty local, but it's it's a matter of actually building that united front where we can do more than just protesting and yelling each time, that we can actually stop, you know, we can defeat this threat, not just fight the threat, but defeat this threat. And that's where, you know, I look back on the 120,000 in May as just one example of the power that we actually have if we would make that power materialize. If we look at the fascists that are still weak and divided, we could stop them entirely. And to quote Hitler, you know, Hitler said way back when, if there were a force in the beginning days when his street thugs were small and weak, then that force could have stopped them at the get-go when it was just in its embryonic stage. And that's what we have to understand. We can stop it. We have to stop it in its embryonic stage. Otherwise, we know what could happen if we don't. What's a point of contact for people? Since I'm speaking for Radical Women, I encourage people to contact Radical Women and get in touch with more of us. But as a starting point... Email address is um, radicalwomen at optusnet.com.au. Our particular contingent was made up of Radical Women, Freedom Socialist Party, the Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne, and the Melbourne Anarchist Communist Group. Just that initial contact. We're on Facebook, Radical Women Australia. Just get in touch, and we want to be making those links. We want to be making those connections and be building that united front. Thanks for your work, Debbie. Thank you very much, Jan. Thanks very much for being an alternative to the mainstream media because the mainstream media is part of the problem. And that is Debbie Brennan from Radical Women. And those pages on Facebook... First, Radical Women Australia 
and then on the internet, radicalwomen at optusnet.com.au. And I've, there's a demonstration tomorrow at 11 o'clock. It's in the Melbourne, outside the Melbourne Treasury buildings, which is just off Spring Street in the city. And I'll just read a little bit out of a, an article in the <coughs> Guardian newspaper to explain why. Human rights campaigners have urged Australia to drop the persecution of a former spy and his lawyer who helped expose a secret government mission to spy on Timor-Leste during lucrative oil and gas negotiations. The case against lawyer Bernal Collery and former Australian Secret Intelligence Service operator known as Witness K is expected to appear in the ACT Magistrate Court for the first time on Wednesday. That actually has been postponed until September. If convicted, the pet face up to two years behind bars for disclosing information about the bugging of Timor-Leste government buildings in 2004, an operation which gave Australia the upper hand in talks to carve up the resources. Human Rights Watch has called for the prosecution to be dropped, saying it is likely to have a a chilling effect on those who witness government wrongdoing. The Attorney-General should not be bringing a case against Witness K and his lawyer for reporting on wrongful practices by the government. Human Rights Lawyers Director Elaine Pearson said, This case, combined with sweeping new laws, criminalising unauthorised disclosures could have a chilling effect on officials who see government corruption or wrongdoing and want to do something about it. So if you want to do something about it, what you can do is be in the city tomorrow at 11 outside the Treasury building, just off Spring Street at 11 as I said. And there's also Get Up, there's a fight for Sorry, fight the persecution of Witness K. You can get onto Facebook and sign the petition there to voice your concern about what this government is up to. The 2018 Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair is on the 11th of August at the Brunswick Town Hall. Stalls, books, projects and organisations fighting for a better world here and abroad. Come for the stalls, stay for the workshops. Topics ranging from indigenous struggles and decolonization, climate change, anti-racism, unions, feminism, refugees, anarchy 101 and so much more. Interested in a stall? Email us on info at amelbournebookfair.org. That's info at amelbournebookfair.org. Or message us on our Facebook page, Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair 2018, a 3CR supporter. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses' Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 
3CR, radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. And it's welcome once again to the studio to Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association for the monthly analysis of events affecting Western Sahara, the only remaining colony in Africa. And I would imagine that 3CR is the only media outlet which promotes the rights of the people of Western Sahara for self-determination. But first, Kate, the two-day visit of the personal envoy of the UN Secretary-General, Horst Kohler. He spent three days in Western Sahara, and I believe he achieved a great deal more than previous incumbents to that role. Well, we're hopeful. We're hopeful that... um that he made a good start anyway after a false start last year when he or maybe it was sorry in in earlier this year the moroccans actually stopped him from visiting western sahara at all which everybody thought was completely ridiculous since minoso the un mission is headquartered at el ayun and the person charged by the un to have that mission as their main tool, if you like, for, for solving the problem, should surely be able to visit his headquarters. And uh, I guess that message got through and the Moroccans lifted the ban and let him in. But then he didn't just visit El Ayun, he also visited Dakhla, right down in the south, and Smara, which is to the east, only about 100 kilometres away from the unoccupied part of Western Sahara, they, they, where there's a military wall. So he, he saw communities in three different places, and he met with more groups than originally thought they were going to be able to speak with him, and that was a very good thing. Furthermore, he apologised for that time had not allowed him to meet with all the groups who wanted to see him. And again, that seems like a good sign that he wanted to hear from the Sahrawi groups who had representations they wished to make to him. But surely that's his right as a UN envoy for the Secretary-General? You'd, say, you'd think so, wouldn't you? Yes, you certainly... Mind you, there are a lot of groups in Western Sahara. I think it's partly to do with the difficulties they have in communicating with each other because it's none of them is legal. And so uh, just having meetings and coordinating their policies and activities in all ways is quite hard. And the longer the occupation goes on, the more and more different different groups there are. There's a group uh, looking after disabled people. There's a group looking after Sahrawi cultural heritage, as well as many different groups looking after human rights. So it's understandable that they all want, and not to mention, of course, the uh, other important one from our point of view, the people safeguarding the natural resources and wanting to ensure that the sovereignty over 
their natural resources is not infringed by the Moroccans. Is he accompanied by Moroccans the whole time he's there? Well, I'm not actually sure about that. I wouldn't be surprised, but I would also hope that they might not be present. However, there are quite a lot of locally engaged staff in the Minerso headquarters, and they could be listening in quite easily, even if they weren't in the room, as far as I, I, I imagine. So, yes, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't be sure. I'm just thinking that there might be sort of a safety issue for the groups meeting him if there are Moroccans hanging around. Oh, there will be Moroccans certainly noticing who comes and who goes. And on the previous envoy, Christopher Ross, was the first to meet with a lot of these groups. He he also met with a lot of the groups, but they're all in El Ayun, as far as I remember. Uh, I might... I hope I'm not wrong about that, but I think that was how it was. And one of the most famous human rights activists, Aminatou Haidar, who people call the Sahrawi Gandhi, she's a big advocate for non-violent resistance. She came and, with her group called Codessa and talked with Christopher Ross. And on the way home, she was beaten up in the street before she could get to her house. So, yes, I haven't heard any tales of retribution in that way on this particular visit of Hurst Curler, though, yeah. I'd imagine that the media is not allowed to accompany him. Is that true? So I believe, yes, there were no foreign media, media, certainly no international observers, apart from the UN staff themselves, but nobody from other organisations or like Amnesty or Human Rights Watch or anything like that. And the, and, and the Moroccan press were not present either, I don't think. So our understanding of what happened relies on citizen journalists in Western Sahara who are very active and very brave because they undergo a lot of, they run a lot of risks by doing what they do, but they do take photographs. The Moroccan police were out on every street corner fearing that there would be popular uh, demonstrations, and yet they all came out and they did demonstrate and they did call for independence and they asked for Morocco to leave Western Sahara and they did get uh, badly um, aggressed by the security staff and uh, in particular there was a near fatality of a young boy who was rammed against a wall by a police vehicle and he had been calling out for self-determination and that is the worst case we don't know quite what's happened to him he was taken to hospital sometimes they even bar the hospital for Sahrawi victims and sometimes Sahrawi victims don't want to go to hospital because they think that something worse will happen which sometimes happens sometimes does happen but 
they messed around a lot with his family. They gave him them false information about what had happened, whether he was in Alayun, whether he'd been moved to another hospital. And Hurst Kurler said that he would like to visit the hospital. And they moved the young boy to Morocco proper, to uh, Marrakesh. And although they'd previously said they were going to take him up there and didn't, this time they asked his mother to accompany them on the journey. But when they got to the hospital, they took the lad in, Ayub, and left her on the doorstep and wouldn't let her come in. And she was left at night in a strange town that she'd never visited before. And they just are persecuting the family as much as the actual victim. How difficult is it to get information about how his condition is? Oh, it's very difficult. I mean, I, I'm in contact with some people there and I uh, have sent an inquiry out, but I don't, they can't always reply immediately because then it's hard for them to get the information. They have to get in touch with other people to find out. Uh, so, um, I haven't heard back yet, although I uh, did ask if we had any recent news. A meeting in Mauritania at the third summit of the the African Union was hailed by the Sahrawi Foreign Minister as a turning point in the handling of the Sahrawi issue. Why? Ah, well, the, the African Union has taken the new step of instituting a little group, no, they call it the Troika, and except that it's the Troika plus one, it turns out, which will be the, the body, the, the, the little panel that will negotiate with the UN on matters connected with Western Sahara. And there will be, the three people will be the past president, the current president, and the future president of the African Union. I imagine they've got a kind of system where they have the, 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 the one to come will be the vice president or something. They know who it is going to be. And, and then there's one more person, and I've just forgotten who that is. But, yeah, anyway, this is important because the African Union wants to take an active role in helping to uh, bring the whole delayed peace process to a satisfactory solution and to ensure for the Sahrawis that they have their act of self-determination, namely a referendum on whether they want to be independent or whether they want to be part of Morocco. Can Morocco just keep on stalling this for just until they decide that they... They want to do something. Is it up to them? Well, surely the UN can put pressure? You'd think so, wouldn't you? But it's been going on for a very long time. Uh, I mean, by contrast, the same similar, the parallel dispute in East Timor also trundled on for many years. But when they finally decided to have their vote, they put together a voter list within about six months and organised a referendum. It was 
there was bloody it was bloody there were fighting there was uh, skirmishes and a lot of lives lost but they got their vote they voted for independence and they have their independence in 1999 i think but with western sahara that should have happened in 1974 or 5 in 1974 the spanish colony then, it wasn't Moroccan then, put together a voter list and they were going to hold their referendum of self-determination with using this voter list. But then Franco was dying and there was a kind of um, sponginess in the, in the leadership there which enabled the Moroccans to take control really of the situation and they saw their opportunity to get their foothold um, and they promised to be a kind of interim regime if the Spanish pulled out. And it was supposed to just be an interim government that would administer the referendum. They, had, they were promising at that stage, partly because King Hassan II, who was then the king, thought he could manipulate the referendum and in fact scandalously a, recent, a researcher quite recently around about 2000 I think he, uh, when, when some papers came, became available he found that Henry Kissinger had said to the king we can manipulate it just like we did in West Papua so they didn't want, America didn't want to take a visible sea, um, place in the dispute, but they were obviously manip- trying to manipulate things behind the scenes in the kind of way that they've done right around the world. And so it's always been Spain and who was resisting and, and France who are the more visible uh, supporters of Morocco. Why France? They're not the former colonisers. They're the former coloniser of Morocco and links with Morocco are very strong and, and connected and right up until today. I don't know whether it's true but I've been reading in the press at the last week, within the last week, about one of Macron's President Macron's bodyguards called Benalla who is of Moroccan origin although he I believe he was born in France but he has been found to be acting aggressively towards demonstrators on May Day which was quite outside his brief he had a permission to observe the police operation but he managed to get police insignia and a a, a riot helmet and he was beating up protesters in a much more brutal way than the French police were and seeing the videos reminded me, was was very strongly reminiscent of the treatment that Sahrawis get from the Moroccan police. Then I read in the Algerian press and of course one has to know that Algeria is not likely to be supportive of Morocco, that this guy, 
used to uh, used to be a member of, or still is maybe a member of the Moroccan secret police so the uh, and we know about a few politicians and other people there are very very many intimate links between the french corridors of power and the and the moroccan establishment known as the Mahzen. This is Tuesday Home Time and I'm speaking with Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association. Just that you said there about American interference with other countries and the hypocrisy of America to accuse Russia of <laughs> interfering in their elections. Yes, exactly. That's uh, something that was we were I was reminded of by Stephen Zunes, a commentator on Western Sahara, among many many other political issues. But uh, he made that comment on his Facebook page. Uh, I read just this morning. Yeah, exactly that comment. Yeah. Well, the ongoing an ongoing fisheries issue with Western Sahara and, and European Union. Where is it at at the moment? Oh, well, it's in a kind of, well, I wouldn't say a stalemate. It's at a difficult, it's at, at a crucial and dangerous crossroads at which point the, somebody, I can't, the council or somebody, I can't remember quite who it is, have approved an amendment to the ruling of the European Court of Justice to say that instead of having to get the consent of the Sahadawi people for the exploitation of their natural resources, and in this case the fisheries, that it would be adequate to consult with the local population. Now, it may sound very similar to an outside observer, but the local population of Western Sahara now consists of a large number of Moroccans. The Sahadawis who remain there include Sahadawis who have been opportunists and are perfectly happy to go along with the Moroccan regime so that the ones that I've been talking about earlier who were demonstrating and all that, that the ones who are in favour of independence and who bravely stand up for it, they are quite possibly a minority in the total population of Western Sahara. Therefore, the Moroccans can manipulate the people that they, um, cons- quotes, consult, and they can make sure that there are people there called Sahrawis who favour their line of argument. So there's a very big difference between getting the views of the uh, Sahrawi people, who I might say are not only this uh, independent seeking minority but the other half of the population are in refugee camps in Algeria and they never get a say in any of this plus there's a lot of Sahrawis in the diaspora in general in Mauritania, in Europe, around the world and it's so important isn't it with the depletion of fisheries around the world that whatever fishes are left and I suppose it's breeding grounds as well are maintained and not exploited as they have been by other countries in Morocco. Yes, that's true. And the Sahrawi coast is particularly rich in fish. This is why it's so popular, why the fishermen all want to go there. And 
it's partly because it is also a breeding ground, so it is supplying fish for the whole of Africa, or certainly the whole of the uh, West Coast. And it's because the Gulf Stream comes down there and the warm water meets the cooler water, and those boundaries are very always very ecologically rich and the fish can breed in the warm waters and feed in the cooler waters and uh, so it's really important as you say that the there should from time to time be a moratorium on fishing to preserve the fish stocks and how many countries are involved with morocco in taking those fish well um Although it's the whole of the European Union that this agreement is made with, m- nearly the huge majority of the f- fishing boats are Spanish. The, I think there might be a f- few Portuguese, and maybe a few from other countries that used to be a couple from uh, Scotland even, but by far and away the majority are Spanish. So they are, if you like, still colonising their ancient colony. And what's fish meal? Ah, now fish meal, I think, I'm not quite sure if it's the bycatch, as they call it, when they are catching other things, or whether it's just small sardines and small fish, but I think that they take some of these fish and they grind them up into a meal, and it is... Uh, then shipped to around the world and it can have various uses I think it might be used in pet food and it is also used to feed salmon there's been a case recently of a load of fish meal from uh, occupied uh, western Sahara from El Ayun going to Germany and one of the uh, colleagues researching the issue discovered that nearly all the fish meal from the facility in Bremen where it has gone goes to feed salmon in other places in Europe. Is this fish farms? Fish farms, yes, exactly. So we're not quite sure yet. We know about the importer of the of the uh, consignment of fish meal, but we're not yet sure where it will be sold on to. It had to go into a kind of quarantine for 72 hours after arrival to have phytosanitary uh, tests done on it. And um, uh, so, yes, we, we, we're following that with interest at the moment. So how does that um, equate with European law on fisheries? Oh yes, well of course it's against the law. Yes, uh, it's it's against the uh, European law as it stands, and unless it get, gets modified somehow by the Parliament. But uh, we hope that they will respect the highest court in Europe and go by the ruling. Uh, that, that that's what they should do. That and which says that uh, goods from Western Sahara cannot be imported to. Europe on any agreement that is made with Morocco so it is not part of Morocco, it is a separate and distinct entity and it's a non-self-governing country which means that the people have sovereignty over their natural resources as I said earlier and their consent must be obtained before 
those natural resources are exploited. Well, if justice was being done, that should should be impounded. It should. It should. And the European Commission was alerted to this uh, shipment by several uh, members of the European Parliament, including the member for Bremen, and we haven't heard anything further from them about that. And we believe that other representations have been made to the German Customs Authority and maybe to the politicians as well. So we're, we're still waiting to hear if there are f- I- I- repercussions from these different approaches. Well, there were repercussions a couple of years ago with the phosphate ships sailing through to South Africa and through the canal. Yes, exactly. That, and in that case, the cargo was seized. What was the outcome of that? Are you aware? Oh, the end of that story, oh, it wasn't quite as happy as it should be, but it was nevertheless very satisfactory for the Saharawis that the cargo was allocated to the Saharawis, who were then uh, sold it, but they <laughs> actually sold it back to the Moroccans. They got it, who had put themselves, painted them into a corner really by blackballing all the other phosphate importers from taking it. So, uh, yes, yeah, so that, that didn't have such a triumphal finish, but it certainly sent a message though. It certainly sent a message, and it certainly sent a message to the importers who are not using that route anymore. One of the, yeah, anyway, so, but, I think that because of different uh, legal systems and because uh, because South Africa recognises Western Sahara, the, the, the Sahrawi Republic, they had a different legal standing in South Africa than they would have in Europe because Germany, for example, doesn't recognise the Sahrawi Republic as a nation. So they would not be entitled in the same way to seize the cargo. So that wasn't such an option in Germany. There's been moves in the US to end phosphate from Sahrawi coming into that country? Yes, that is a bit of good news that has just come through, that a company called Innofos, which imported from Western Sahara a lot of phosphate, and it used to have a plant in Mexico and in other places, but it particular it was supplying a plant in Louisiana in the USA and they've just announced that they are not going to take any more phosphate from Western Sahara, which is a very big story now. It's they would have been supplying I'm I'm a, I've got myself a little bit confused about all these connections, but I think it's connected with Nutrien, which is the amalgamation of two phosphate companies called Agriem and uh, Potash Corp. And Innofos was supplying Potash Corp, the old Potash, or the legacy company they're calling it to. So, yes, it's a bit sort of complicated, but I think that's how Innofos comes into the Nutrien story. And how many countries do you know are still importing phosphate that's coming from 
Well, the ones that are actively involved in in importing are mainly the two New Zealand companies or or their farmers' cooperatives. They're called Ravensdown and, sorry, Balance Agri-Nutrients. And that was one of the ships that was bound for New Zealand that was stopped, wasn't it? That's right. It was the Balance Agri-Nutrients ship that was... was the first time it, it had taken that route. And so at the time that it was impounded, those involved thought they were impounding a, a cargo coming to Australia. But then it turned out that it wasn't. And despite all of that happening, the balance have bounced back and so have Ravensdown been quite unrepentant. And they are still... Uh, importing and think they've got every right to import. However, we hope that these little cautionary tales will have some impact and that they may decide to source their phosphate elsewhere, as indeed our local importer, Incitec Pivot, has done. They have decided to source phosphate from Togo in West Africa instead of from Alayun. But the last time we spoke to them, unfortunately, they were adamant that they were, this was not a final decision and that they wanted to keep their options open. So we are hoping that bit by bit those options will close and they will realise that it is not a good idea to be contemplating getting their phosphate from Western Sahara. And, of course, it's a finite resource, well, yes, that's the other problem that uh, really they owe a lot to the Saharawis now because they have been importing for many, many years and all of that money should have been going to Saharawi, not to the, the, the Moroccans. Are they still taking Western Saharan sand? Oh, yes, I think so. I, I haven't heard about it recently, but they they do. They I think they do it all the time, probably. They use it in the Canary Islands in building or this, and I think there must be different kinds of sand because as I understand it there's something called fatty sand that is used for making concrete and there's sort of river sand or sea side sand that is used for other things like making beaches it is imported to the Canary Islands certainly for both purposes, they have some of their islands at the, uh, have uh, black sand which isn't attractive to tourists and so they bring in lovely br- uh, yellow sand from Western Sahara and um, fill the beach with yellow sand which is kind of rather strange. So is it the theft of these resources which is one of the major reasons why Morocco wants to hold on to Western Sahara or a lot of others as well? I think there are a number of reasons. And uh, Toby Shelley in his book called uh, Endgame in Western Sahara, which is now rather old and he really did think that they were getting into the endgame back in 2004 or somewhere like that, he, um, said, he, he said if you look at the map and you can see Morocco is by far the smallest country in the West African Maghreb region. 
next door to Algeria, which is the biggest country of Africa. And Tunisia is small, but it's bigger than Morocco. And Libya is big. So, and Mauritania is big. So Morocco feels a bit squeezed out and it's right on the edge and it's next door to Europe and the connection is very, very close at the nearest point with Spain. So it's kind of understandable why they would feel be going to Europe for comfort and support when there are hostile countries around. They like having a bigger country. So there's just size matters to them, but it's also that the country is rich in resources and they don't have many resources of their own. So I think both things count quite a lot. Is there anything else you'd like to say, Kate? Not at the moment, but... uh... All right, well, thanks once again, Kate. Right. Oh, thank you, Jan. Thanks to Kate Lewis. The Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is continuing its Stop Failing Our Kids campaign until this year's Victorian state election. We're asking people to sign an online petition and to send postcards to Premier Daniel Andrews, calling for his government to abandon plans to build a $288 million youth prison at Cherry Creek. We want that money directed to culturally appropriate programs to address the underpinning issues rather than incarcerating children. For more information and to sign the petition, visit Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Postcards are available at 3CR and locations listed at istramelbourne.com. Premier, it's time your government stopped failing the kids. Istra Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. That was Kate Lewis from the Australia Western Sahara Association. And I might have been a little bit mean to Green Left Weekly when I said that 3CR was probably the only media outlet pushing for or promoting self-determination for the people of Western Sahara because on an occasional basis, Greenleaf Weekly also carries stories of what's happening to the people of Western Sahara and also those who are existing, I suppose you could, about all you could say, existing in the refugee camps that are in Algeria. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say, it's okay, you are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419 8377. Vote for your mic. Want to support 3CR's diverse and independent voices? Well, it's not too late, and we still need your support. Donate now by calling 9419 8377 or donate online at www.3cr.org.au or post us a cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277 Collingwood 3066. Fight for your money. Next to the monthly segment with Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network.
I'm going to start, Bob, with um, an issue that you first spoke about, I don't know how many years ago, and it was um, steam weeding. Tell us how that happens. Where instead of using strong toxic chemicals like Roundup to control weeds around very sensitive areas like schools, playgrounds, the kinder and so on, uh, we've been trying to encourage local councils for a very long time to get rid of Roundup spraying in favour of weed steamers, which is a system for applying ultra-heated steam to weeds around the streets in order to, um, you know, manage the local environment but not poison everybody. And uh, we finally had a season of success with the city of Yarra, where 3CR is based, deciding that they will, for the next five years, contract the weed-stemming people to... Uh, to control the weeds in the city of Yarra, which is a great win, I think. Absolutely. And uh, we're hoping that it will spin off to a lot of others as well. And, of course, we have to acknowledge that what they do now is Roundup. That's right, yes. Well, Roundup is um, increasingly having the finger pointed at it as uh, Monsanto has been taken over by Bayer and uh, its reputation was unravelling because, of course, it's been hiding the evidence about the toxicity and carcinogenicity of Roundup for a long, long time now. I suppose the foremost case at the moment is in California where uh, Dwayne Johnson, who was a school groundsman for quite a long time, would be required to spread Roundup around the school grounds and so on. He's now got non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and is going to die quite soon. So in California, unlike Australia, for instance, Someone who is going to, uh, has a claim but may die in the meantime can have their case expedited and uh, Duane is now in court. For Monsanto it's not a pretty picture because the thousands of, of pages of uh, hidden documents have finally come to light showing that Monsanto has known all along that its product is toxic. It hasn't run people properly and it shows too that our Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority, which is the Australian regulator for Roundup and other chemicals, has not been taking the evidence of harm seriously either. They recently reviewed all the evidence, and up on their website it says, we reviewed the evidence, provided you follow the label, Roundup won't do you any harm. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? That, that was a report that they was in The Age a couple of weeks ago, wasn't it? I believe there has been some media coverage of it, and of course... A similar case in the past where a company has gone to um, extreme lengths to hide the toxicity of its, um, of its products was the James Hardy case over asbestos in Australia, where for decades they kept people who had asbestosis and mesothelioma as a result out of the courts, simply delayed them until they died. And now, finally, we've got a case here where if uh, Mr Johnson is successful in California at exposing what uh, Monsanto and, and its Roundup herbicide have done to him will mean that certainly thousands, if not tens of thousands of other cases will then come to court around the world for the harm that this toxic chemical has done. We hope, of course, that some other very toxic chemicals will be re-examined as well and may be taken off the list for spraying around our streets and, of course, on farms where our food is produced as well. It's banned in some countries, isn't it? There are restrictions. Uh, in France, 
for instance, it's now been taken off the shelves of supermarkets and uh, hardware stores. We've certainly approached Bunnings here in Australia about restricting the amount of chemicals that can be available without success so far. So yes, uh, Europe also was just required because it reviews and re-registers chemicals every 10 years. Uh, Roundup just came up for re-registration in Europe and instead of uh, giving it the typical 10-year extension of its licence, it has five years and I'm very confident now that when it comes up for renewal in 2022 or three, that uh, Roundup will disappear from Europe as well. It's um, under extreme pressure there. As I said, some places like France are already restricting it, and I believe that others will start to do that too. We should be doing the same, uh, not standing back and saying business as usual. How long has it been in society now? Uh, since the 1970s, it was first registered as a herbicide. It had originally been registered actually as a chemical for cleaning pipelines. You know, scale builds up on the insides of pipelines, so it was um, for getting rid of the gunge out of those pipes, and then they found that as a, res uh, as a result of further research work that it, it would also kill weeds. Of course... There are other cases as well going on, incidentally. Um, the Organic Consumers Association and others in the USA also have another case running about Roundup. Monsanto has always claimed in its advertising that uh, Roundup couldn't impact human health because we don't have the same metabolic pathways as plants. But what's been found is that, uh, in fact, Roundup impacts the microbiome, the, the bacteria in the human gut and uh, the Organic Consumers Association are arguing that um, that's an impact on human health as well and uh, trying to progress that case. We'll see how that works out. Meanwhile, we've got Dwayne Johnson in court and we're hopeful that he will be successful. Does the fact that Monsanto has now been bought out by Bayer change pending court cases or court cases for the future? It appears that Bayer is going to be liable for uh, the liabilities or any liabilities that Monsanto may have in incurred and of course that's the right and proper uh, situation when a company has taken over. The new owner should bear the responsibility for any litigation and so on that's still going on. The Monsanto name may appear but the harm that it's done will not disappear. You know, the chemicals that it's produced, like PCBs, for instance, over which it's being sued in many places around the world as well, these cases should be settled by Bayer, which, uh, of course, paid $66 billion to take over Monsanto and now becomes the biggest seed and chemical owner in the world. So it's got very deep pockets. The community should not be disadvantaged by the fact that it's now the owner of Monsanto Company. Talk about the ISAAA annual report and what is the ISAAA? Well, this is the, uh, an industry front group based in, also based um, near Monsanto's headquarters in St. Louis, Missouri, that um, annually puts out an industry report about the state of genetically manipulated crops worldwide. And what we see from the latest report the figures for 2017 
is that globally the spread of genetically manipulated crops is actually going down, not, not up. And I guess there are pretty clear reasons for this. The old cut-and-paste genetic manipulation has stalled and is now going down. In past years, of course, they were growing because it seemed to be increasing always uh, since the GM soybean, corn and canola were launched in uh, 1996. Particularly no new products have come on the market. It's the same four crops with the two traits, the Roundup tolerance, so they could spray Roundup more often and higher, at higher doses over the plants that we're going to eat. And, uh, of course, the BT insect toxin, which is built into the plant to kill the caterpillars of certain insects. This year, or 2017, the number of farmers growing uh, GM worldwide went down for the first time from 18 million to 17 million farmers. Now, it sounds like a lot of farmers, but it's actually just less than 3% of the world's 570 million farmers. It's still a very, very small blip on the food production uh, scene, and the claim that genetically manipulated foods would be needed to feed the world simply doesn't stand up to any kind of close examination at all. The number of countries growing commercial GM crops also went down from 28 a year before down to 24 last year. So a number of countries have begun to say uh, this didn't work out, it's polluting our environment, uh, we don't want it anymore and abandoned. But are the promoters of GM now turning to the CRISPR to solve their problems? Well yes, um, of course you say they're turning to it but the new genetic manipulation techniques developed over the last five years have got their own problems. They're making precisely the same claims about feeding the world, about doing things more sustainably, about fixing nitrogen in grains, which of course at the moment only can happen in legumes like peas and beans. They're making a whole raft of claims that were made 25 years ago for the old GM. But what's now becoming clear from this scientific literature is that uh, the new so-called CRISPR techniques have their own safety and credibility problems as the old ones. We'll see how this plays out. But just last week in Nature Biotechnology, they found that the CRISPR procedure, which is supposed to be so exact and be able to cut DNA so precisely and cleanly, that in fact what's happening that is that uh, in some cases it's actually chopping up the DNA. It keeps cutting and cutting and cutting without stopping. That, of course, is not good for the, not good for the cell and would not be any good for any organism that might be developed out of such a procedure. It also appears to disrupt the other genetic material during the process, which, of course, at the cellular level, is a very uh, thorny technical problem that's going to be very hard, I think, for the new gene jockeys using CRISPR to actually solve. There's also news from Nature Medicine in the last couple of weeks that it may also induce cancer in humans. There's, of course, there's a lot of work going on in so-called cancer therapies to try to fix various human diseases and also, incidentally, of course, to uh, create the perfect human being, which remains 
an idea in the forefront of uh, many minds. Certainly does. They're, they're really working on it, aren't they? Oh, they are indeed. You know, eugenics, the kid with higher IQ, with the blonder hair and the bluer eyes, is very much within the thinking of, of people. It's a shame that we haven't learnt anything from the eugenics movement of 150 years ago, which was very popular, of course, in the USA uh, in the early 20th century, where a lot of women were sterilised because they were thought to be feeble-minded, etc. It was thought that you could, by selecting genes in the human genome, even though they didn't have the tools to do any genetic manipulation at that time, that they could, by deleting certain people from the gene pool, uh, create a better human race. And, of course, our friend Adolf Hitler picked up that idea. There was a lot of experimentation in Germany to try to make that a reality as well. Well, now they've got tools, and uh, there are people out there wanting to use it. And, of course, last week, too, we saw that the Nuffield Council, which is the so-called Nuffield Ethics Council or Bioethics Council, in the UK also gave the green light to this kind of manipulation of human beings. Shame on them, that's all I can say. What justification do they give for giving the all clear? Well, I think that it can be regulated somehow or another, that you can get the good, that you can fiddle with the human genome to fix genetic problems and, and still somehow or another control the impetus for people to want to also select the characteristics of their babies to make them brighter, faster, better looking, taller and all the other things that somehow or another people in, in different societies think are desirable for their offspring. I mean, it's sort of inherent really in the, in the IVF programs as well in which, of course, we do uh, screening of embryos to make sure that they're the best they can be and then the others are dispensed with. So the Nutfield gives the green light not only to human gene therapies, which would be doing therapy on individuals, but also uh, they give a tick to the idea of tinkering with the human germline so that the innovations that they make can be passed on to future generations. This is extreme hubris. This is thinking we know best and not realising that we are just a very, very small slice in time and the engineering that's done now will have who knows what impacts. So this is the extreme hubris of thinking that we know best, that this moment in time when we're in certain societies and we have certain priorities will be good for all time so that it can be passed on to future generations to determine how they will be as well. It's a bit like uh, creating nuclear waste, which is going to be toxic for the rest of time as well, and thinking no responsibility to uh, make sure that that can be disposed of before we create it. I think there are ethically and morally parallels between nuclear waste and uh, human gene manipulation affecting the human germline as well. Well, let's finish off with a couple of good news stories. The first um, relating to Ireland. I'll just read a, a paragraph. Ireland's Minister for Climate Action and Environment, Dennis Norton, has cabinet approval to prohibit or restrict GMO cultivation after Brexit. He said, 
it is critically important that Ireland takes whatever steps are necessary to maintain our GMO cultivation free status, which is a key element in our international reputation as a green, sustainable food producers. Pretty good? Oh, excellent, yes. And, um, of course, that's the sentiment really right across Europe. The GMO-free regions is a, a movement which from local, state and national level throughout Europe says uh, we don't want genetically manipulated crops and we certainly don't want to eat the food. Europe requires um, a lot of the food, including canola exported from Australia, to be squeaky clean as far as GMs concerned. And it's really encouraging that Ireland has taken this this step. It's going to be good news when the GMO-free regions uh, meet in um, September, as they do every second year. I'm hopeful that um, we will again be able to link up with them and emphasise that uh, South Australia, Tasmania, the ACT and Northern Territory in Australia also remain GM-free, although, of course, they are under pressure. Just last week, politicians in the South Australian Parliament going for an inquiry, which will be good, I think, within the Parliament, uh, rather than letting the, the Liberal government set up its, so, its own so-called independent inquiry to try to knock off uh, South Australia's GM-free status. We're working hard there in South Australia. We're working with the Europeans. We're bearing the flag, as we always have, for Australia to stay GM-free. And for the pasta lovers listening? Oh, pasta, yes, yes. <laughs> Perilla, the world's biggest pasta maker, uh, based in Italy, it's very concerned, of course, about the quality and the reputation of its products, as Australians should be. And that's one of the reasons, again, for South Australia, stay GM-free. Barilla knowing that the um, maximum residue limit on glyphosate has recently decided that it's going to set a limit on its products a thousand times less than the accepted standard, which is essentially to say we don't want Roundup in any of our products. Zero tolerance. They import a lot of Canadian wheat. Of course, now the Canadians are going to have the devil's own job trying to comply with Barilla's new requirement that any wheat exported from Canada and incidentally, of course, exported from Australia as well is going to have to be absolutely zero tolerance for any glyphosate residues. A thousand times less than the official maximum residue level is going to be a level that anybody is going to have who uses Roundup is going to have extreme difficulty meeting. The Italians, of course, banned crop desiccation for this particular, for this special reason as well. A lot of crops are still sprayed just prior to harvest uh, in order to get rid of the trash, the leaves and the twigs and all the stuff on the plant so they don't go, gum up the harvesting material. Italy's now banned that as well. And we're going to have to think very seriously if we're going to be compliant with people like Barilla and the um, Italian sentiment that we too will have to stop spraying those um, chemicals, particularly Roundup, onto crop plants just before harvest because they do leave residues in the food. 
They do affect shoppers. It's about time we got them out of the food system. Well, there are alternatives, aren't there? The broadacre farmers would say not. They, of course, are arguing very strenuously. People like the National Farmers Federation argue very strenuously for continuation of the existing system. But um, this is the time when we need some serious research and development money being put into the sustainable, clean, green alternatives so that we can get off the chemical treadmill, we can start reading the books like the new book by Charles Massey, for instance, called The Call of the Reed Warbler, about getting development money into regenerative farming systems where we look after the soils, we look after water, and we don't pour synthetic chemicals into those production systems so that we get the best food we can, which is what shoppers want, where we can really uh, meet human needs and ensure human health uh, in the food supply. Well, if these companies want to keep on making money, they're going to have to comply. Well, they have to comply and they have to start making that transition because I don't think it's going to be acceptable for very much longer. We're running a campaign in the lead-up to the next election, for instance, for the reassessment and re-registration of all agricultural chemicals. There was a program for re-registration to be instituted on the 14th of Ju- uh, on, in 2014, on the 1st of July. But, of course, Barnaby Joyce knocked it off when he became the minister. The party had set it up. It was set to go. And uh, they rolled over. So we're saying to Labor now, you've got to give us back that reassessment scheme because the Americans have now got a reassessment scheme for those old chemicals, some of which have been around for up to 50 years which were never properly assessed, for which there was no proper safety data. They need reassessment, they need re-registration, and that program needs to be brought here in Australia because, of course, the Europeans are doing it and the Americans are now re-registering their chemicals every 15 years as well. We are going to have to uh, conform if, as they want to, they want to continue sending bulk commodities overseas into other people's food supplies. They are going to be tested for things like Roundup residues and we are going to be found wanting. Asia, America and Europe will start to say we don't want your primary products because they've got uh, synthetic chemical residues that are not acceptable to us. We better listen, listen hard and get on with changing our practices here as well not only in the interests of exports, of course, but in the interests of public health and safety here in Australia. Thanks once again, Bob. Thank you very much, Jan. We'll talk to you again soon. And a bit, little bit of feedback there from that phone line with Bob Phelps from Genetics. Just a reminder, the Treasury building in just off Spring Street tomorrow at 11 o'clock, a demonstration there to protest the planned prosecution of Whistleblower and his lawyer regarding Timor Oil. So that's tomorrow at 11, Melbourne Treasury Buildings off Spring Street. And that petition on GetUp, fight the persecution of Witness K on GetUp. Hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. 
Hi, my name's Paul. I've, this is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great, really healthy and nutritious. La, 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 Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots. You know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, Fill in the 3CR Community Radio. You got it right. You've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 855am. We're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by... By Neil Mitchell. Last week, the most right-wing and religiously governed coalition in Israel's 70-year history enacted a law that enshrines the right of national self-determination as, quote, unique to the Jewish people, unquote, not all citizens. The legislation, a basic law, gives it the weight of a constitutional amendment, but it is argued that it is what it doesn't mention which is the telling point. I'm speaking with Nasser Mashni, co-founder of Australian for Palestine and Olive Kids and treasurer of APAN, Australian Palestine Advocacy Network and also co-presenter of Palestine Remembered here on 3CR on Saturday mornings at 9.30. Nasser, can you first elaborate on what this basic law says and what it means? Last week, Israel passed a nation-state law, and Israel doesn't have a democracy, rather a set of principles under which it's governed. And ultimately, what this law, in fact, declares that Jews are the only people that have the right to self-determination within Israel, remembering that Israel doesn't have a defined border. It um, currently occupies East Jerusalem, the West Bank, Gaza, and the Golan Heights through Syria. The legislation stipulates... Israel is the historic homeland of the Jewish people and they have an exclusive right to national self-determination in it. And also as another uh, another part of the legislation, currently or before last week, Arabic was an official language of the State of Israel where, you know, somewhere between one in four and one in five people speak that language. That language has been stripped of official language. Hebrew is now the only official language and it's been downgraded to special status. So, look, one of the things that, you know, as an activist, as, a, as a, an Australian of Palestinian ancestry, diaspora, refugee Palestinian, what this law does is takes the mask off the, the pretense of Jewish democracy. This is the reality of Palestinians' existence within all of historic Palestine. Now what we have is it enshrined in law. What this means now is that a, not, uh, uh, an indigenous population now is paying taxes to a government institution that has a legal and uh, like a constitutional obligation to 
downgrade those taxpayers to second-class citizens. And whilst we've always known that this was the Zionist enterprise, it really exposes Malcolm Turnbull and the Australian government when they say Israel and Australia are shared democracies. We are shared settler colonialist regimes who have taken the land off Indigenous people. Israel now has gone one step further than Australia, which took the land off our Indigenous people without treaty or sovereignty, and now has legislated that the Indigenous people are second-class citizens. It's claimed that this law is a betrayal of the 1948 Declaration of Independence. Can you explain why? Arguably, the Declaration of Independence in 1948, the language within that, like I presume most founding documents of countries, is quite open and talks about everybody within the country having equal rights, etc., the cold hard reality is we know in 1947 through to 1949 that the terrorist gangs of Irgun, Stern, Haganah commenced and then uh, the Israeli Defence Force after the establishment of the uh, State of Israel in 1948 continued with the ethnic cleansing of Palestine and whilst the principles in the founding document of the State of Israel might have been moral if you will, the reality is the state has never truly lived by the morals of that founding document in that in excess of 95% of the land of the State of Israel is reserved in into perpetuity for the exclusive use of the Jewish people worldwide. The 60-plus Israeli laws that mean that uh, Palestinians are subjected to uh, second-class citizens. Uh, and, and a couple of those very, very quickly, Jan. If I was to marry a Palestinian-Israeli woman... Uh, and we wanted to live together within the State of Israel, I can't get citizenship. So if she's a citizen, our children would be citizens if they were born there, but if they were born outside of there, that would be up for, for debate. But any Jew anywhere in, uh, on earth can actually at any time go and claim Aliyah and return to the State of Israel. This is precluded to me, though. My grandfather is buried within uh, historic Palestine, and you know my father is now buried here in Australia, his adopted homeland. We don't have the opportunity, if I wanted to visit my grandfather or grandmother's grave or the house where my um, father was born, I have to ask an Israeli for their permission to allow me in. So it's never been a democracy. It's certainly a democracy for the Ashkenazi Jew, but um, the levels of diminishing democracy change as you work through from um, you know, a Jew from a European Jew, an Arab Jew, an African Jew, and then an Arab, whether you be Christian, Bedouin, or Muslim. Now, you're saying that Israel doesn't have any proper borders. How then can it institute a law like this, or indeed any law? Well, look, it continues to do so with the, the full support militarily, economically, and diplomatically from the United States and, and many Western uh, governments. Increasingly, though, we're seeing that being challenged. As uh, A couple of weeks ago, the Senate in Ireland passed a boycott resolution. I think the, pop the world's population is starting to wake up to crime that Zionist Israel is perpetuating. And, and the biggest challenge, the challenge we have, if we go back to the original sin of the, the Balfour Declaration in Science-Pico, is that uh, one people promised another people somebody else's land. And the concept of Zionism and where it exists today 
is that the Zionists want all of the land of historic Palestine and they want it to be a democracy. Well, the reality today in those borders is that 50% of the population is not Jewish. So you could, you're a land and you're democracy, but you, you're not Jewish. Well, or they can be Jewish and have the land, but you're not democratic, and that's today. Or you can be democratic and Jewish, but you can't have all the land. And the conundrum that faces Zionism is it wants all three. And so there's a really famous line that Zionism wants as much Palestinian geography as possible with as little Palestinian demography. What does it mean for the Palestinian people, that Hebrew? Hebrew is the official language. Most Palestinian Israelis speak Hebrew. For many years it's probably as strong, perhaps a little bit stronger than their Arabic and English is their third language. It doesn't actually mean anything in the sense of moving forward today in their day-to-day lives within Israel. What it actually means, though, is that it's a stamp that you're not one of us. We've always known that we're not one of us and that we're an other, but as we've seen the rise of racist attacks within the United States as President Trump continues his equivocation with respect to... um, well, I'd, I'd call it morality, but anyway, the move of the far right within the Israeli Knesset, and every Knesset's been right-wing. When they talk about a left and a right, the left is right, and the right is very far right, and this government that Benjamin Netanyahu leads today has some really awful characters within it. The conversation that occurs now within Israeli homes is really derogatory in the sense of othering, you know, a significant minority and an indigenous minority within that land. And it's got to be remembered that those Palestinians within historic Palestine, they didn't go to Israel. Israel came to them. Often that's forgotten. One part of this law says it promotes, or people believe that it promotes the development of Jewish communities and discriminates on land allocation policy. Surely that's already happening. Absolutely, Jan. So since 1948, there hasn't been a Palestinian town or village, a new Palestinian town or village. There's been some new communities for some Bedouin tribes as they've um, taken over ancestral Bedouin lands. But after the 48 ethnic cleanse in Nakba, some 450 Palestinian villages were erased. Today, Palestinians, if they endeavour to buy homes within new settlements, they are um, met by entrance committees and those entrance committees are tasked with the responsibility of ensuring that applicants meet the, uh, you know, a standard test and what it actually is, and uh, is making sure that they're Jewish. There was a, an undercover report done a couple of years ago where, you know, Palestinian Israelis who speak perfect Hebrew and were, you know, secular looking in the fact that the woman wasn't wearing a hijab, made applications to and were accepted to um, rent or buy properties within new communities. When it was found out that they were in fact Arabs, that the couple were not Jewish, that approval was quickly rescinded. There was a clause that was past the first two readings of this law but didn't make it through the third reading and now into legislation, was in fact promoting a Jewish settlement, Jewish-only settlement, excuse me. And the words that actually made it through to the um, law was that the the state views the development of Jewish settlement as a national value and will act to encourage and promote its establishment. In in, in the previous reading, it was very clear that this is what we're going to do. 
that's a you know a little bit more vaguely worded, but still says clearly that we're going to build communities for Jews only. This law wasn't passed by many votes, was it? There was a very small... The gap between yes and no was very small. Is that right? I think it ended up being 65-55 with two abstentions. Well, that's only five or six people who could have gone the other way, isn't it? Correct, yeah, yeah. So when you take out the joint list, the Arab parties who hold some in around 20 seats, there were others who... Um, Jewish members of, of the Knesset who didn't agree with, it, with the law as it was. Look at the reaction overseas. You said that slowly but surely people are waking up to Zionist propaganda. Have you seen anything in the last few days from particularly North America where there is a lot of um, agitation? I've seen nothing from North America yet. There was a, like a, a statement from the EU but it wasn't really... Uh, as strong as we'd like it to be. Chen, one, one of the things that we measure the success of our struggle is the solidarity we get from people around the world. And certainly when we look at the conversations that are being had from, you know, what previously were lay communities with respect to, to Palestine, those conversations are changing in the West. There are many people, you know, uh, baby boomers who bought into the Zionist kibbutz, Paul Newman, Exodus movie, uh, inspirational make the desert bloom land without a people for a people without a land propaganda and Hasbro. The reality is those people are waking up and certainly amongst the youth significant changes with respect to the struggle for Palestinian self-determination and increasingly so amongst Jews in the West, young Jews uh, under 30s and, and under 25s. Israel runs these birthright programs where you know hardcore right-wing Zionist supporters will pay for children of Jewish people to perform Aliyah to return to uh, to Israel and we've had I think on the weekend another eight kids walk off one of these birthright tours saying the map you're showing me doesn't show the West Bank and the tour operator saying well we don't think there's a West Bank it's all of Israel and you know when are we going to meet some Palestinians well you've come on an Israeli tour why would you meet Palestinians and there's a real questioning amongst the youth of Judaism as to whether or not Israel represents them. And as we know, you know, Judaism is a religion and a, and a, a beautiful Abrahamic faith. And, and certainly Zionism is not representative of Judaism. And of course the fact that while this law is being passed, the, the bombs are raining down on Gaza. Yeah, so we've exceeded 140 deaths now in what was is a peaceful movement as Palestinians sought their inalienable right, their inalienable right to return to their ancestral homes. And when we consider Gaza, you know, as David Cameron said as Prime Minister of Britain, an open-air prison, two million people, 70% of them are refugees. Many of them can see their ancestral land at the other side of the fence. Many of them holding title deeds and keys to their, their homes that they were ethnically cleansed from. The state of Israel was entered into the, uh, was allowed to enter the United Nations as a country, if you will, and one of the conditions of its accession to the United Nations was the full application of UN Resolution 194, which says that the Palestinian refugees have a right to return to their homelands and those that don't want to need to be compensated. Israel has been a member of the UN now for 71 years, has yet to allow a single refugee to return home and now makes statements that there's too many of them and if they came back, this would be the destruction of the state of Israel as a Jewish state. 
But the reality is, when there was only half a million of them, 600,000 of them, they didn't let them in then. They were never going to let them back in. Israel was never established to give equal rights to the indigenous peoples that were there as well as the Jews that fled the Holocaust. You're not holding your breath for the, the federal government or even the, the opposition to come out positively on this issue of the law? Look, I hold no hope for Malcolm Turnbull or the Liberal government to do anything vaguely humane. You know, having heard Malcolm Turnbull's comments about Sudanese youth last week, the dog whistle politics that uh, is reminiscent of uh, the Howard era is only uh, widening the gap between our um, wonderful country and the multicultural society that we live in. The federal Labor is having their national conference in December. Palestinians and solidarity activists who are in solidarity with the Palestinians will be moving towards asking the Labor, uh, the next Labor government, to immediately recognise the state of Palestine, as Jeremy Corbyn has committed to as uh, a platform in his Labor government, in a future Jeremy Corbyn Labor government in Britain. We're optimistic that we're not going to get to see change from the top down. This needs to be driven from the bottom up. And increasingly, we are seeing support from the bottom. So we're, we're optimistic that um, this colonial settler project stays limited. Are you aware of how many serving politicians in the Labor Party have been on the Israeli-sponsored tours? Probably look up the numbers uh, and come back to you with respect to that, Jan. But I know recently I, I, I did actually calculate those numbers and we had something of the order of, in the past 10 years, our biggest trading partner, politicians in the past sort of, I think it was 8 or 10 years, 60 visits to China. We had 50 visits or 49 visits to the United States. And in the same period, there was 102 visits to Israel. Um, and these are sponsored visits to Israel, business class, you know, helicopters over the Golan and in through to uh, Serdot. Really phenomenal propaganda to us that, you know, all expenses paid. Plenty of work there for APAN. There's plenty of work. We're not going to go out of the Palestine advocacy business soon, I don't imagine, Jan. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't pay anything, but um, what we do have on our side is uh, the truth, a willingness and a, and, a, and a determination to stand with those people and their rights, the Indigenous Palestinians and their rights to self-determination. And, you know, what really amazes Zionists, and they, what, one of the things they can't reconcile is how a, um, how a population, when faced with nuclear weapons, the full support of the United States militarily, diplomatically and economically, nuclear submarines, tanks, F-16s, when that population resorts to flying kites as, a, as an offensive weapon, they can't understand why we haven't given up. What they don't understand is we haven't given up because we're Indigenous, and Indigenous people never give up their rights to their land, where their fathers and mothers were buried and where they were born. And it's important too that 3CR has a, a Palestinian program. We've had a Palestinian program here most years since inception, but there were a few years where there wasn't. But there's now a very important program on Saturday mornings at 9.30. Yeah, no, so I, I, I jointly host that with uh, Yusuf Rinaldi and uh, Robert Martin, Palestine Remembered. So we do sincerely thank 3CR for their continued support of the Palestinian cause, which is in line with its core values and our struggle for Indigenous rights and sovereignty yet treaty within Australia. And thank you so very much for all of your support too, Jan. You're, you're a wonder. Thanks.
I nearly cut that out, but I was told I wasn't allowed to. That's Nasser Mashi from APAN, Australian Palestine Advocacy Network, and he's also co-founder of other Palestinian advocacy organisations here in Melbourne, Palestinian Australian. And it is very important to listen to the program on Saturday morning. It is in English. You hear a, a lot more from the perspective of the Palestinians from that program here on 3CR 8.55 on 9.30 Saturday mornings. That's all for me for today. I will be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock, but until then you'll be able to listen right in a couple of minutes to Done By Law and, as I said, I'll be back in next week at 4. Bye for now. <laughs>